1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. SPAC in action as one major Southeast Asia startup reportedly preps for the biggest blank check deal to date, the reporter who broke that story coming up in the show. And call it a prime tax. What Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos is telling the White House about its proposed corporate tax hike. Two weeks early, the UK begins to roll out its third COVID vaccine for the first time today. And a chip surge. Private equity bidding war, sending one Japanese electronics maker surging in the overnight trade and getting out ahead. What sources close to CNBC say Morgan Stanley did in the lead up to that Archegos Capital trading scandal. It is Wednesday, April 7th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning to you. I am Dominic Chewing for Brian Sullivan this morning. Here's how stock futures are looking on this Wednesday morning. You can see here we are indicated just slightly higher, about 32 points higher for the Dow Jones implied. The S&P would open higher by roughly three, three points and the Nasdaq higher by just about 14. So again, stable moves, modestly higher in the overnight session into this morning. Stocks coming off a mostly lower session just yesterday. The Russell 2000 small cap index snapping a four-day winning streak. The S&P 500 snapping a three-day win streak of its own. Now, around the world, a mixed picture overnight in Asia. You can see there Hong Kong finally back open for trade after an extended holiday weekend in most many Asian markets, especially around China. You can see there the Hang Seng down about one percent. The Shanghai Composite just about flat on the day. The Nikkei in Japan up about one tenth of one percent as well. Let's spin that globe over to what's happening with uh, trading in Europe. Things are in the early going there right now. The German DAX is just about flat on the day. Meanwhile, the FTSE 100 is up three quarters of 1 percent and the CAC in France up about one quarter of 1 percent as well, mostly green in the European trade in the early hours so far. Well, today's some of today's top headlines, the U.K. is expanding its COVID-19 vaccine rollout as the Moderna vaccine will now be offered starting today. It's the third vaccine to be approved in the country, and the approval comes just about two weeks earlier than expected. Concerns over the AstraZeneca shot and a shortfall of supply have slowed the U.K.'s vaccine rollout. But the country's health minister saying that three out of five adults across the country have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. New information coming out in the Archegos capital saga. Sources close to CNBC say Morgan Stanley dumped $5 billion in Archegos' holdings the night before the massive fire sale that stung the likes of Nomura and Credit Suisse. Morgan Stanley is the fund's largest prime broker. The basket of stocks included Baidu, Tencent and about six other names. And the sale may have saved the bank some $10 billion worth of losses. And financial patronage platform Patreon raising over $150 million in its latest funding round, bringing its total valuation to just around $4 billion. The platform allows artists, musicians, and other creators to get financial support from their fans without relying on ad-supported models. Patreon has also said it is considering a public listing this year and that it's been approached by some special-purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. Well, just when you thought the SPAC craze was winding down, take a look at this. Grab, Southeast Asia's most valuable startup, is getting ready to merge with a SPAC backed by Altimeter Capital Management in a deal that will value the SoftBank-backed ride-hailing company at around $35 billion. The deal would see Grab list in New York as soon as this week, possibly Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline, Corporate Finance and Deals Editor at the Financial Times, Arash Masoudi, who helped break that story. So, Arash, take us through just how big of a deal this is. It's hard to say SPAC and then say $40 billion deal in the same sentence.
2: Exactly, Dominic. And as you pointed out correctly, this comes at a very important moment in the SPAC kind of journey because everything we've been hearing in the last few weeks is that the pipes, you know, the, the private investment and public equity that have been funding these deals, uh, have been the market for that has been drying up. We've seen SPACs that haven't struck deals yet trading below the $10 per share offer price that they offer their shares at. And yet we get this news that uh, Grab, which is a Singapore-based company with business all across Southeast Asia, it's one of the most important startups out there, offering everything from you know food delivery to ride-hailing and most importantly financial payments uh, to a dispersed population, uh, is is set to merge with this Altimeter SPAC at a $35 billion valuation. It will have a $2.5 billion pipe, according to our understanding. Of that $2.5 billion, about $1 to $1.2 billion of that is coming from Altimeter itself. So you add that to the 450 or so that's in the SPAC, you're looking at a $3 billion worth of proceeds going to Grab and a merger that suggests that, at least for certain kinds of companies, the SPAC market is still very much open.
1: Can you take us through, a Arash? You mentioned some of the businesses that Grab is in. What is it that makes this company so valuable, so attractive? Why would investors want to get into it, and should they? They're an asia based company; they'll be listed here in the U.S. What should investors here in the U.S. know about why Grab is worth thirty-five some billion dollars?
2: Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very important story out there because it's, it's basically one of the most important startups. It started as uh, about you know about a decade ago as a kind of copycat of Uber. But it quickly morphed way beyond that, and it went into you know food delivery. It went into all these different categories uh, of of the economy, essentially playing this role as like the everything app in Indonesia, which is the four, uh, world's fourth largest um, uh, country by by population size. And across Southeast Asia, you you'll find it kind of ubiquitous, along with Gojek, its main rival. Now, what's what's interesting about the company is that it's got heavy, heavy backing from SoftBank. And it fits very much that mold of bank backed companies that we've discussed over the years, which is that it's heavily lost making, it's raised a ton of money, but you're betting on a sort of ubiquity and growth that one day will mean it will be incredibly profitable. It has yet to prove that, but that is very much the vision of where it's going. And so it fits very neatly into this SPAC narrative around companies that you're kind of betting on in a couple of years' time will, will show huge results, but we're not quite there yet. So investors who would be buying shares in this after the merger is completed essentially would hope that this company uh, goes from a show-me story to a sort of dominant, ubiquitous player in the spack market, in the, in the Southeast Asian economy, economies that it operates, and that it has tons of avenues to growth. And that financial services component of it is probably the most exciting bit. If, if they can kind of dominate digital payments in an economy where cash is still the predominant form of uh, currency exchange, and kind of help unlock banking services to huge portions of the population in Indonesia in particular, you're looking at something that could be a kind of dominant, dominant payments company, which, as you know, the market has been uh, very, very uh, hot on over the last few years.
1: Uh, Raj, we just have a few moments left here. When it comes to competition for a deal of this nature, this size, it seems as though Grab is, is a hot commodity, something everybody wants. How did Altimeter get this deal done? What exactly was the competitive landscape like for getting a deal done to take this company public?
2: So this all the the kind of key moment came last month. Uh, Just there was a board meeting at Grab essentially to decide uh, which SPAC to go with and this was still the market was much hotter then and essentially Grab had his choice between uh, two different SPACs uh, one from Altimeter and one other one which we haven't named quite yet but we do know who it is Uh, and it decided to go with the Altimeter offer Uh, and fundamentally it, 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 it just tells you that the market is open for these companies and and for high growth companies. Now, um, let's see. Let's see how how this changes in the next few days as we get closer to an announcement. When the story kind of leaked in the Wall Street Journal last month, right after that board meeting, it was mooted at a forty billion dollar valuation. We're now talking about a thirty five billion dollar valuation, and we're still uh, hearing some uneasiness that this could slip to thirty four or thirty three or thirty two billion as the days come in. So, I think you're seeing some of this reflected in the final days as we lead up to the thing to the to the announcement. And it'll be very important to see how exactly they complete the deal. What are the terms? If they were able to hit that three billion in total proceeds raised, there's a lot of stuff to look for
1: here. All right. Certainly a barometer for the market for SPACs, especially on the bigger side of things. Arash Masoudi at the Financial Times. Thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, when we come back here, what our next guest says could fuel the next leg on the U.S. equity bull market rally. Plus, why millennials may be the key to the current housing market crunch. We have a closer look at the real estate industry coming up and then later on, Piper Sandler's out with its spring teen retail report. The brands that are hot and the ones that are not when it comes to teen wallets, it's revealed. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break.
0: What does it mean to be rich?
1: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Futures are inching higher after major averages closed lower with the S&P 500 retreating from record territory. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Fiera Capital Portfolio Manager Candice Bangson. Candice, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Let's take us through whether or not yesterday's price action was any kind of an indicator to you or are we still in this churn phase with stocks near record highs?
4: Yeah, well, the equity market rally has been impressive, but also justified given this extremely robust economic backdrop combined with the uh, abundance of monetary and fiscal support. So we think that above average valuations are warranted and we think this equity market rally does have further room to run.
1: So if above average valuations are warranted, why is it that interest rates are such a huge focus right now? Uh, the, the, The conventional wisdom is that as interest rates go higher, those valuations and what people will pay for stocks tends to go lower. Why the record highs in the market right now, given the backdrop in rates?
4: Yeah, well, we have to think about the context as to why interest rates are rising. It is not because central banks are stepping in and tightening monetary policy instead It is because of that stronger global growth backdrop that will inevitably feed into stronger corporate profits and, of course, higher stock prices. But, of course, within the equity market space, there are some notable pockets of opportunity where rising interest rates will benefit, particularly in those value-oriented sectors of the market that benefit from the reflationary trade, notably resources, financials. These are the pockets of the market that actually do well in an environment of rising interest rates.
1: Have those sectors outrun their coverage, so to speak, Candice? I mean, you look at the, the energy sector, the single best performing one in the S&P so far this year for your, resource, your resources trade. The financials are the second best performing mm-hmm. sector by a wide margin. How much is already priced into the marketplace right now, given the fact that these stocks have been on a tear ever since the pandemic lows over a year ago?
4: Oh, absolutely. The performance gap has narrowed uh, quite substantially since November. But remember that that performance gap or that valuation gap between growth and so-called value stocks remains um, quite sizable in general after a a long extended period of value-related underperformance. So we do think this has more uh, room to run here as the global economy continues to gain ground throughout uh, 2021.
1: Okay, so if that's the case, are there specific areas – Within those natural resources type companies, financial type companies that you find interesting? Is it the smaller mid sized banks? Is it, is it the money center banks? Is it oil and gas? Is it other parts of the uh, mining complex? What exactly is the value oriented trade right now?
4: Yeah, right now the value oriented trade is those. Um, sectors of the market that are closely tied to the fortunes of the global economy and the reopening trade. Of course, the sectors that lagged through the pandemic in 2020. So within the resources space, obviously oil and gas um, on the prospect for a resumption in energy consumption this summer as the economy continues to reopen. Uh, financials we think still have Um, A lot of room to run, given the prospect for higher interest rates, particularly at the long end of the curve. Um, So taken together, uh, this value oriented trade uh, based on the reflationary narrative that we've been talking about of stronger growth, ample liquidity, um, you know, should carry these um, still underappreciated sectors higher throughout the year.
1: All right. Candice Bangson, thank you very much for your thoughts. We always appreciate it. Have a good day. You as well. Thank you very much. Well, still on deck for the show, welcome to the party. Details on New York's plan to legalize online sports betting, plus breaking down the guilty tax and why President Biden hopes it will push more U.S. companies to onshore come back to the U.S. in the years ahead.
4: Today's big number, $2 trillion. That's the value of the entire cryptocurrency market. The boost in the crypto market cap has been driven by Bitcoin, which is up 100% this year. And Ether, which hit an all-time high this week, up over 180% so far in 2021.
3: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: Well, it's probably more than fair to say we're seeing the most competitive housing market in at least the past decade. Home prices reaching a 15 year high back in February, according to CoreLogic, as demand continues to clash with low inventory. That's squeezing some potential buyers out of the market as mortgage rates start to climb. Let's talk more about the landscape in the housing market right now with Odetta Cushy, Deputy Chief Economist at First American Financial. Odetta, good morning to you. Thank you. Let's talk about just how affordable or not affordable the housing market is given those dynamics.
5: Good morning. So just as you said, we've seen house price appreciation on a year-over-year basis increase to 15-year highs. So certainly that, that seems to make the housing less affordable, but we have to consider the impact of mortgage rates. And while mortgage rates have trended up in, in recent months, they're still historically low. So relative to one year ago, housing is actually still more affordable. And that's really thanks to this low uh, mortgage rate environment that we find ourselves in.
1: So, so we've been speaking so much about this idea that the low, the, the low mortgage rates have helped existing home buyers, many of whom have refinanced their mortgages to either lower interest rates, shorter terms, or both in, in, in many, in, in many cases here. How, how much can interest rates go in terms of higher before the real housing market crunch is felt if the dynamic right now is still with relatively low rates overall?
5: That's a great question. And, and I would say, you know, so think about purchasing power. So how much home you can afford to buy. Increasing mortgage rates um, certainly cut into that, um, especially if you don't have a slowdown in nominal house price appreciation, especially if you don't have a corresponding growth in income. But what we anticipate will happen is if mortgage rates rise high enough, that'll start to cool down house price appreciation, which should help with affordability.
1: So, I mean, the, the economics of housing have always kind of Baffled me. I, I'm a homeowner myself. Yet, many times real estate brokers go into these transactions advising their clients it's about affordability, right? How much can you take from your paycheck in terms of rent or a mortgage to sustain your lifestyle that you have? Meanwhile, other people say you should look at the actual value of the property and then work backwards towards whether or not the, the payment is there. How exactly should potential home buyers? be valuing these properties, how much should they say, hey, you know what, the market is like this, this is what the market will bear, versus how much should I pay because this is how much I can afford out of my monthly paycheck.
5: I'd say it's from the perspective of a a potential home buyer, it's all about what you can afford to pay per month. And that's really what we mean when we talk about purchasing power. How much home can I afford to buy? And given the fact that mortgage rates are so low, um, you know, that that's really helping to boost purchasing power, which is why we've seen such high demand in the market.
1: Now, if we talk about some of the biggest centers that, that have seen the biggest gains, it has been in suburban areas outside of metropolitan centers. Are we going to continue to see that kind of trend play out? And how how long does it last? How long before people say, you know what, maybe I want to move back to New York City?
5: Certainly, as things open back up again, you know, you'll you'll have demand coming back to the cities. But it's important to note that demand for the suburbs existed even prior to the pandemic. You have this massive generation, the millennial generation, aging into their prime home buying years, aging into the lifestyle decisions that uh, correlate highly with buying that first home, you know, moving out to the suburbs, getting the, the, the house with the schools. And so we, we saw this trend to smaller metros and suburbs even preceding the pandemic but certainly the need for more space accelerated some of that Um, and so we, we do anticipate demand to come back into larger cities denser cities but but this suburban trend preceded the pandemic
1: all right so the suburban trend is intact before we let you go Odetta the spring season is almost you can say it's probably in the middle of it right now what exactly have you seen so far and what can we expect for the summer
5: Yes. The spring season got an early start this year. We didn't see the usual winter lull that you would see in the housing market. Expect um, the current dynamics to persist, increasing demand against limited supply of homes for sale, uh, which means continued house price appreciation and, and a pretty competitive market.
1: All right. First American Financials, Odetta Cushy, thank you very much for the preview of the real estate market come this summer. We hope you'll come back again with us soon. Thanks so much. All right, let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in the New York area with the latest here. Good morning, Philip. Hey, Dom. Good morning to you. The U.S.
6: State Department has denied that it was discussing with allies a joint boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. A department spokesman had earlier suggested that a boycott of the Olympic Games was among the possibilities for addressing China's human rights abuses. The Beijing Winter Games are scheduled to begin February 4th of next year. The push to get Americans vaccinated against COVID is growing more urgent this morning. The U.S. reporting nearly 31 million infections and more than 562,000 Americans have died due to COVID. And now cases are trending upward again in half the country. But according to Johns Hopkins University, nearly half of the new infections over the last week were from just five states. New York, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Finally, Walt Disney World in Florida is updating its face covering policy starting tomorrow. Guests will still be required to wear masks, even if they have been vaccinated, but they can temporarily remove them to eat, drink or take photos outdoors. That's the latest from here. Dom,
1: back to you. Philip Mena, thank you very much for the update there. As we head to break here, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or whatever podcast app you choose. Worldwide Exchange in audio format. Check it out. We'll be right back. President Biden working to shore up support for his $2 trillion infrastructure package as lawmakers raise new questions on what exactly qualifies as shovel ready. We're live in Washington, D.C. to break down the White House's strategy. Amid the push to figure out how to pay for that massive plan, Jeff Bezos throwing his weight behind the call to hike the U.S. corporate tax rate, what the Amazon CEO is saying on that contentious topic, and the teen take on what's hot and what's not. Piper Sandler's top consumer research analyst lays out the firm's new findings on the trends and brands that make the cut. It's Wednesday, April 7th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chiu in for Brian Sullivan this morning, and here is how your money stock futures look halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern Time Hour. Futures indicating a relatively stable open. You can see here the Dow implied higher by just about 16 points. The S&P roughly flat, just about one to two points higher. And the Nasdaq higher by just about eight. So, again, stability after a day of modest losses in yesterday's session. Now, again, for that session yesterday, the Russell 2000 small cap index snapped a four-day winning streak. The S&P did snap a three-day winning streak, but less than one-tenth of one percent it remains from an all-time record high. Let's look also at some of these sectors and stocks you need to keep a close watch on right now. Take a look at that reopening trade. Earlier this show, Candace Bang said, if you're a capital, spoke about that kind of economic recovery trade. Well, check out the energy sector ETF, ticker XLE. We mentioned before the best-performing sector in the S&P 500, up about almost 30 percent, you can see here. Meanwhile, consumer staples, many of those stay-at-home type stocks, you, you can think about cleaning supplies. You can think about basic food type products. It's only up about three percent during that same time span on a year to day basis. So, again, the pandemic trade perhaps wearing off a little bit right now. We'll see if that trend continues. Also, check out what's happening with some of these names. I'm specifically referring to Home Depot, Target and Starbucks, among others. Why are they important? Well, they're all mega cap companies. They're all consumer focused and they're all some of the reasons why you are seeing such high levels in the consumer discretionary sector, Home Depot, Target, and Starbucks, by the way, each hit record intraday levels at some point in trading yesterday. And then one other trend to watch on the more macro side of things is what's happening in credit markets, specifically with investment grade bonds versus high yield bonds. Well, this is the high yield sector side of things. 16% upside here over the course of the last year. Meanwhile, you can take a look at the investment grade corporate bond. Here's what I want to focus on. Look at that widening gap that's happening right now During the course of the last several months, you've seen a sell-off in terms of the shares, shares, iShares corporate bond ETF on investment grade. People are taking money out of those investment grade bonds and then putting them elsewhere. You can see there it's holding up relatively well for high yield. So whether or not that high yield and then investment grade dynamic continues, that remains to be seen, but certainly something to watch. Well, now to this morning's top stories. Coinbase is pulling back the curtain on its financials ahead of its highly anticipated trading debut next week. The cryptocurrency exchange revealing its first quarter revenue surged ninefold from a year ago to $1.8 billion. Coinbase, which also reported a massive growth in net income, cites the historic rally in the price for Bitcoin behind those gains over the last year. Bitcoin prices up about 686 percent. Funding by venture capital shattering records in the first quarter, according to new data out overnight. Venture capital VC-backed companies raised more than $62 billion during the period. That's up 117 percent year over year for the highest quarter on record. That's according to data from PwC and CB Insights. The money was spent mostly on funding rounds of $100 million or more, or so-called mega deals, with Robinhood and SpaceX among the largest deals of that quarter. And Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos is voicing support for a proposed hike in the U.S. corporate tax rate. In a statement, Bezos said he supports President Biden's focus on investing in infrastructure and that Amazon was supportive of a rise in the tax rate. Bezos' support for a tax increase is notable, given that Amazon has previously faced scrutiny over its own tax record, including from President Biden, as recently as just last week. Well, sticking with that two trillion dollar infrastructure package, the Biden administration is working to better explain what would qualify as shovel ready projects under the plan in a push to win over skeptical Democratic and Republican lawmakers. And amid that conversation about raising the corporate tax rate to help pay for the plan, global companies are facing the possibility that the lower tax rate to motivate them to bring more of their offshore money back home could be going up. We have complete team coverage on both of those stories, starting with Kayla Tausche and Robert Frank here. Kayla, we will begin with you. How is the White House making the case to these skeptical lawmakers?
7: Well, Don, when you look at the actual package itself, in just about half of the $2 trillion-plus package proposed by the White House consists of what we think of as traditional infrastructure projects like bridges, highways, and ports that Congress funds on an annual basis. It also adds electric vehicle chargers, uh, funds the power grid, broadband, water pipes, and much more. And Maya McGinnis of the Center for Responsible Federal Budget says the physical nature of these items will be easily defined as infrastructure, even if specific provisions within the bill uh, will still be debated. But on the other end of the spectrum, the package also has so-called social infrastructure, the clearest example being $400 billion to expand elder care through Medicaid. And then there's an in-between, a sort of gray area with plans for modernizing schools, housing and veterans facilities, and to revamp manufacturing capacity. Those are seen as getting support potentially on a standalone basis, but there's disagreement about them being in this package. Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked yesterday about challenges from Republicans about just the sheer breadth of this plan. Some have previously called for investing in broadband and the expansion of broadband as a means of expanding infrastructure. Uh, Some even have uh, reference to replacing pipes as a means of infrastructure. Uh, So I would suggest that many of their constituents would be surprised to hear that those are not infrastructure projects. Ultimately, it will be up to congressional committees to decide what stays and can pass and what ends up on the cutting room floor. Democrats are hoping to edit the bills by Memorial Day and pass them by Independence Day before funding for existing programs runs out on September 30th. Now, the White House next week will host another series of bipartisan meetings to try to sell this package. But, Dom, there are just 28 working days between now and July 4th.
1: Hard to imagine. It's creeping up with us so quickly here. Kayla, I, I wonder Republicans have now vowed to block the package already because of its grab bag type nature. That's how some refer to it as. What about the moderate Democrats and how do they feel about this? We know that there's a couple of them. I think of Senator Joe Manchin as one of them that that could be really important voices and important votes in getting a deal like this done.
7: So far, there have been a half a dozen or so that have raised concerns publicly and privately, Dom, about the pay force in this package, the fact that the corporate tax rate uh, is proposed to be raised as part of the way to pay for this package. But when I spoke to several offices yesterday about where specific concerns lied, uh, a lot of senior aides noted that lawmakers are still trying to sift through uh, the substance of the package, and they're hoping to have discussions with the White House about it, but they haven't identified uh, specific concerns about some of these programs that I just listed, that they want to be cut. Many Democrats want to see programs that they have previously backed be included in this. So some of them even want it to be bigger. And as one senior aide put it to me, as far as the Democratic caucus goes, uh, there's not really a block of voters that stands to uh, to vote against this because they don't have unified concerns here. Uh, but everyone wants something to be included or perhaps withdrawn from it, Dom.
1: All right, still mines to be one over there on both sides. Of the, uh, Kayla Tausche with the latest there on the infrastructure plan. Thank you very much for that. Now to Robert Frank, who is the overseas corporate tax side to the story. Robert, how much of a hike on that guilty tax could we be talking about? Is there a minimum tax rate that everybody should pay out there globally?
8: Yeah, that is the debate, Dom. And, you know, you look at the corporate tax debate in, as a whole, and a lot of it has been around that 28% top tax rate. But the big fight and the big money, especially for global companies, is around Biden's plan to double the tax rate on foreign profits. And it all has to do with, as you mentioned, something called guilty. It's the Global Intangible Low Tax Income. This is a minimum tax on overseas earnings that was created as part of the Trump tax cuts to make companies both more competitive overseas and prevent them from channeling a lot of their earnings through the Cayman Islands or other low-tax jurisdictions. Right now, the guilty rate is 10.5%. Biden plans to double that to 21%. And because companies can deduct only a portion of the taxes they pay to other governments, the effective tax rate would be 26%. Critics say that would put U.S. companies at a disadvantage to foreign competitors and would lead to more inversions and foreign takeovers. A lot of that we saw at the end of the Obama administration. But supporters say the current rate is too low and doesn't generate enough revenue. The Tax Policy Center estimating that Biden's rate would cost companies an extra $650 billion dollars over 10 years much of that coming from big tech giants like apple facebook yes amazon the big pharma companies and the big media companies so you know we saw you mentioned earlier dom jeff bezos praising the effort to raise that top tax rate. Uh, He hasn't said and probably won't say anything about foreign earnings because they are crucial not just to Amazon but to all the big tech companies. So you
1: can guarantee their lobbyists are already fighting this. I feel like it's been forever since we've talked about the term tax inversion or those kind of mergers between foreign companies (laughs) and U.S. ones here. So, so, so Robert, I'm curious. How do other countries, speaking of competitive nature of things, right, how do other countries tax overseas profits for their companies?
8: Yeah, most OECD countries do a territorial tax system, which means They only tax the earnings in the country in which that company has earned them, and then it doesn't tax them again when those earnings are brought back to their home country. So, this guilty tax is really a double tax. These companies, like Facebook, all these companies, they pay, let's say, a tax in Germany or France, wherever they're doing business, and then they pay that extra 10.5%. So, this is coupled, of course, with Yellen's call for a minimum global tax that all countries would need to follow, because unless you have that Yellen's Piece raising this rate, doubling this rate to 21% doesn't make sense for U.S. companies. So most countries outside the U.S. don't tax when you bring it back. The U.S. does. That would double. And so that's why these two pieces are very important to work together, because otherwise it
1: would put U.S. companies at a big disadvantage. And competition is going to be key in the coming years with everything happening in the global economy. Robert Frank, thank you very much for the update there on the global tax situation and the guilty tax. Well, this morning, stocks to watch here are coming up, including the potential $20 billion deal that has Toshiba shares surging in Japanese trading. But first, as we head out to break some of your other top stories today, Saudi Aramco reportedly in advanced talks to sell up to a 49 percent stake in its oil pipelines. According to The Wall Street Journal, the potentially $10-15 billion billion dollar deal would involve a consortium of U.S., Chinese and local investors that includes, possibly, Apollo Global Management and EIG Global Energy Partners. New York has officially given the green light to legal online sports gambling. The move was approved as a part of the state's fiscal budget and Governor Cuomo has previously said he wants to run the new industry through the New York lottery system. And college basketball star Luke Garza is becoming the latest athlete to sell an NFT. The University of Iowa senior tells CNBC the winner of the digital asset will also get signed shoes and a chance to spend time with him. If you missed that interview yesterday, it was down in the afternoon yesterday here on CNBC. Worldwide Exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on some of today's big money movers. Toshiba shares jumping 18% in Japanese trading after the company says it received a buyout offer from private equity firm CVC Capital. The deal could value Toshiba at more than $20 billion. The company has been under pressure from activist investors since it sold stock to foreign hedge funds following the bankruptcy of its U.S. nuclear business back in 2017. Again, those shares up 18 percent in Japanese trading. Sticking with the Asian trade, Samsung expects first quarter profits to rise 44 percent. That would top estimates amid the global chip shortage and despite shutdowns of some U.S. chip plants. Samsung will report further results later on this month, but those preliminary results are driving a half percent loss in Korean trading. And Kiogen is rising after it received emergency authorization from the FDA for a new COVID test. The company says the PCR test should be able to return a result in less than 90 minutes. Those shares up 1% Kiogen in pre-market trading right now. And then there is Nike. According to the latest biannual Piper Sandler taking stock with teen survey, it remains the number one apparel brand with teens of all income levels and genders since it took the top spot back in the fall of 2011. And since that time, it's up more than 530-some percent, again, since becoming the teen's top apparel brand, according to this Piper Sandler survey. Joining me now with more key takeaways is one of the co-authors of that report out this morning, Piper Sandler senior consumer research analyst, Aaron Murphy, I love this particular report because I love just some of the news that you can get, some of the themes and trends to watch here. Take us through what exactly were the key developments between your last survey and what we're seeing today.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Dominic, for having me on. I mean, it's been quite a year. I mean, these teams have been dealing with COVID-19 for the last you know, 12 plus months, and it's really reshaped their behavior. And so I'd say a few of the key takeaways is we're seeing online shopping penetration, the highest we've seen ever. We've seen females actually start to outspend males, and that's very encouraging. I think that's probably the most important data point coming out of this survey, because the last time we saw Female spend, start to outspend males, that was the beginning. That was in fall of 2009, and that was the beginning of a multi-year apparel replenishment cycle. So we're encouraged by some of the green shoots as we kind of move from the last 12 months of what has been locked down into, um, into kind of the reopening opportunities. So to your point, Nike was the number one brand, both apparel and footwear. Once again, athletic is a dominant trend, but there are some green shoots in other areas of the female wallet that we're encouraged by.
1: So, so, Aaron, we often talk about this notion that, you know, crises sometimes exacerbate trends that were already currently in place or, or, or taking root. If you take a look at the pandemic, based upon your survey, are we seeing that kind of thing continue as well? Are we seeing certain brands kind of lead the pack or, or maybe even kind of get ahead of the pack because of some of the trends that we've already seen in, in place? Where is the positivity coming from?
0: Sure. So we are seeing, you know, casualization of fashion that has been a multi-year theme that was, you know, that predated the pandemic that has clearly been exacerbated to the upside in the pandemic. So Nike, the number one brand, Lulu hit the newest high. We've seen number four apparel brand even brands like Under Armour, which have been laggards in our survey, started to rebound. So we are still bulls on the athletic theme. The other area, um, as you think about casualization, and I think this is important to watch, is the trend around denim. We asked a number of uh, questions around what are the top trends in school today? And denim popped up on that top 10 list higher than it's been in several years now, and as well as some of the themes kind of reminiscent of the 1990s. So we are starting to see a little bit of a throwback as well in, in, the, in the survey.
1: All right. So so we know gene trends change, you know, year to year and whatnot. I I wonder if you talk about that denim theme, is, is there something that then you are recommending to clients with regard to how to capitalize on that? Is it certain like American Eagle Outfitters? Is it Levi Strauss, just plain and simple? Where are places that people go for that upside in denim?
0: Sure. So we don't cover Levi's or American Eagle. Eagle was the number two brand, though, so I must mention that in the survey when you think about apparel. The way we would play that is in contour brands. They're the owner of both Wrangler and Lee. It's a great way to play denim. We think that's uh, very important. And then there's a number of other specialty retailers, again, slightly outside of our coverage, but you know Pacific Sunwear, uh, you know, curated specialty retailer that was also um, kind of rising in the survey. So I think there's a few ways to play to play the denim cycle, um, you know, in our coverage and even slightly outside.
1: Given the survey results, Aaron, are, are there certain places that you would then be very much more favor, favorable in, in terms of your coverage and your recommendations? What parts of the market are the strongest in your mind? What are your best ideas?
0: Yeah. So best idea, starting at the top, it's still Nike and Lulu. You want to own those names today. I'd add Under Armour in there as well. I think it's still fairly contrarian. And then on the female-centric side, because, again, the spending among females was the highest we have seen, particularly for clothing, since 2013, we're looking at names like Revolve. Uh, This is a female-centric e-com player. We raised our price target this morning, $53 price target. We would be buying Revolve. It also took... near all-time high in our survey. And then Tapestry, they are the handbag player. We do think handbags are you know, primed for a rebound here, and they own Coach and Kate Spade. Both brands also took uh, multi-year highs in our survey. So Tapestry raised our price target to $54 today. We think that's another way to have some risk on the, the female recovery spending trade.
1: All right. Lots of brands, lots of names, lots of ideas. Aaron Murphy, always great to get your thoughts, and we appreciate you bringing us those survey results. Thanks very Thank much. You. On deck for the show, stocks looking to bounce back a little bit today as the Dow and the S&P work to reclaim those record highs that we saw just earlier this week. Maritas' financial groups, Gregory Branch, lays out the names he's finding some opportunity in, speaking of ideas. And if you have not already done so, subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple or Spotify or other podcast apps, whichever one you choose, Worldwide Exchange in audio format. Check it out. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Stocks are looking to build back towards some of those record highs. after We saw a pullback in yesterday's trading. And your next guest says as global growth ramps up, there are still value sectors and companies presenting attractive opportunities, as well as individual growth stories that are worth owning at this stage. Gregory Branch is managing partner at Veritas Financial Group. Greg, it's great to have you on this morning. Let's talk about whether or not we are seeing certain parts of the market that are still buys, even though we're at record highs.
9: I think that's the case. Uh, Up until now, I was able to make the argument that we were seeing anemic multiples in some of these sectors. But the multiples have largely caught up over the last few months. Now my outlook is that the earnings are far too light in the back half of the year. The jobs number was a great indication of this, where it came in 50% higher than the consensus estimates. And so what I'm looking for is, particularly in those value and uh, cyclical sectors, That the earnings revisions will keep coming in and that we'll see significantly higher earnings for the back half of 2021 than we're seeing now, where we're at right now, 60 to 70 percent of pre-pandemic levels in our estimates. So those will need to come up. We'll have some upside surprises on earnings. We'll have some upper revisions, and that will be the driver of performance.
1: All right, let's talk ideas, Greg. If that earnings catalyst is there, what stocks are going to be the most propelled by that kind of an earnings tailwind?
9: Right. So I think financials is still an opportune sector uh, where we might see the net interest margin environment uh, become much more accommodating, which lifts all boats. But I'd still focus in on those large diversified players that have shown profit drivers, that have shown revenue streams from other activities like capital markets, like trading, like IPOs. And with an accommodative Fed and with historic liquidity, those should continue to be sources of strength. I'd also look at some retail sectors. Obviously, uh, spending will come back from the consumer, uh, probably in a big way, but portions of our society have not participated in that historically high savings rate. And so I'm focusing in on the value shopping sector, and they're not all created equal. I'd really focus in on those that have taken the opportunity to invest in e-retailing. Remember, e-retailing has gained massive share over the last year, about a decade's worth of share, in the last 12 months. And so the Walmarts and the Targets of the world will benefit both from the value shopping as well as from the e-retailing and separate themselves from the Targets and the Rosses of the world. All right, and,
1: and the reopening trade. We, we, we've talked about it a lot. It'll normalize at some point, but there are, are there places right. in the market that are maybe outside traditional airlines and hotels that you are finding the most opportunity, the most runway for higher, higher
9: returns in the coming six to 12 months? Right. And so the way I look at the reopening trade is I want to be in business models that are fairly predictable and then have some certainty. Uh, with airlines, with cruise lines, I don't really have that certainty. And quite frankly, neither do the CEOs, which is why we're lacking guidance. And so the first step I take is looking at the business models that I know, that I trust, and are predictable. And, and within that swath of sectors, uh, I like casinos. You know, many of them uh, lost money last year and will return to three dollars plus a share in profits as well as the same in dividend. And so you're going to see some pretty significant rebounds in some of those business models that are fairly predictable, that haven't been stigmatized, uh, and that I think will have big years.
1: All right. Greg Branch with the Casino Call. Thank you very much for your thoughts. Have a good day, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That does it for here. us here on Worldwide Exchange. Markets are opening up relatively flat right now. Squawk Box will pick up the coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.
3: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery,